Well, if you will, turn again with me to the book of Obadiah. Tucked away in the latter half of the Old Testament. It's a small prophetic book, one chapter. I've thoroughly enjoyed my last few months in this book. As the assignment was given to me, I'm not sure, maybe two or three, about three months ago, so I've had adequate time to spend with the Lord in the book of Obadiah, and I only wish that I could communicate in a small degree what the Lord's been impressing upon my own heart from the book of Obadiah. This week we complete our three-week study of the book. The first week we laid the foundation for a better understanding of Obadiah seeing God's providential love for His people as the primary theme of the book. And we followed this biblical theme, if you remember, through Scripture, beginning with the personal feud that began with Jacob and Esau, twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. We know according to God's Word that before the children were yet born, God had determined that He would love Jacob and hate Esau. And we continue to follow this theme, this biblical theme of God's love for His people from the personal feud into what would become a national conflict between Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, and Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And the Edomites, by opposing those God loves, made themselves enemies to God. But ultimately, we trace this biblical theme into the New Testament. And as we looked at the spiritual implications of God's bestowing His providential love on His people. Paul explained it for us well in Romans chapter 9. Let me read again, as I have every week, Paul's conclusion, those spiritual implications that began with the birth of Jacob and Esau. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. And just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what began as the promised feud between brothers has elevated into God's sovereign choice to bestow bestow compassion and mercy on His people. We must understand God's love for us is not based on our merit. 
but His sovereign choice alone. We can understand better that the birth, life, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are at the heart of God's providential love. So as we read the New Testament and we look at the book of Obadiah, we see the strong connection of God's providential love. In summary, the book of Obadiah is simple. There's three promises that we really use to divide the book. God will judge His enemies. God will save His people. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Those are the three promises that God communicates to His people through the prophet Obadiah to show His providential love for us. They're found in three verses. Obadiah 15 is God's promise to judge His enemies. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. Though God may lovingly discipline us, His people, like He did the Israelites, in Obadiah's day for a season, He will most assuredly judge those who harm His people. Actions against God's people are actions against God. And He will, according to Scripture, act. The second promise is God's promise to save His people, found in verse 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Those who carry the label of His people will escape God's final judgment. Our escape is owed entirely, again, to God's providential love. And then we find the last promise, verse 21. The deliverers, or the saviors, will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And, here's that last promise, the kingdom will be the Lord's. God is sovereign over all, and He promises the kingdom will be His. We must look to Christ, as we talked about last week, our elder brother, by faith, and believe that these promises that we find in Obadiah have been, feel, been fulfilled in Christ as the only means of salvation from the eternal judgment of God. Our intent this morning is to look at the greatest of these three promises, which I think is the last, found in verse 21. And though we should delight much in the promise that those who oppose Christ in us will face judgment, and that we will be saved eternally by God in Christ, the greatest promise made in Obadiah is that the kingdom will be the Lord's. The two other promises of judgment and salvation are found within the greater promise that the kingdom will be the Lord's. In all our investigation today of Obadiah, we must see both the near and the far fulfillment of Scripture. So how was Scripture fulfilled in Obadiah's day? Was his prophecy true? And Do we have evidence of that? And the near... Excuse me, the far. The greater spiritual fulfillment of these promises. Well, let's look this morning at the first judgment of God. The first part of this. Really, we want to break the sermon into three parts this morning. We want to look at the judgment of the Lord. We want to look at the salvation of the Lord. And we want to look at the kingdom of the Lord. 
the judgment of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, and the kingdom of the Lord. But before we do, we need to, once again, see the text together. Look with me in verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drink on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them. So that there will be no survivor of of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. And those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of the host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Well, our focus this morning, I I gave you the outline, really, the judgment of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, and the kingdom of the Lord. And that's really our focus. Christ is not only the judgment of God on His enemies and the salvation of God for His people, but He is the fulfillment of the promise that the kingdom will be the Lord's. If Christ doesn't come, if He doesn't condescend, if He doesn't die on the cross and raise again from the grave, this promise cannot be fulfilled. It's entirely dependent on Christ. And that's our aim this morning. So let's look at the judgment of the Lord. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. That's a far more scary thought than we would give to it in our initial reading. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. We find that God does judge the enemy nations, not just the Edomites that Obadiah speaks of, but the nations that had actually come and attacked Israel in this day. Remember, the Edomites just stood aloof. They cut down the, those who fled the city of Israel, but... As far as the ones who attacked Israel, the Edomites weren't the guilty party here. Though God's word condemns them as such. It said back in verse 11, you too were as one of them. But we do know if we follow through in Scripture and we trace history, that indeed the Edomites, about five years after this invasion took place on the country of Israel, were themselves... Conquered. God has spoken. 
According to verse 18, and so it was inevitable. But there is a greater day of judgment that awaits those who will not repent. The Edomites in the day of Obadiah are not alone. But generation after generation after generation of unrepentant people have followed suit. And with the same inevitable assurance that Obadiah gives the people of Eden that they will perish, those who have not repented in each generation will face the same judgment. Now I want you to look with me very carefully at your text. It says, for the day of the Lord. Now I want you to see the word Lord in your text. I'm going to take, do a little sidebar here, just a, a, a note. The word Lord there should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Which is the word translated from Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh will judge the peoples of the earth. Now for us to really grasp the entirety of the importance of that word, we need to maybe dip back into the Old Testament a bit further. I'm not going to ask you to flip around a lot this morning, but I do want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3 for just a moment. Turn to Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. We're just going to read three verses there, but I think it's going to give some meaning to the word Lord that we see in Obadiah chapter Excuse me, verse 15. Within the Old Testament, God reveals His covenant name as Yahweh. We see the heart, the root of that in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. It says this, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. When translated into English, the four characters are rendered as capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. Because when the Hebrew is written, it's only written in consonants. You'll find the vowels above or below these consonant letters. This is known theologically as the 
tetragrammaton. In Greek, it literally means four letters. Four letters. Related to the Hebrew verb to be or I am. The name expresses the reality that God simply is. He's preexistent. He's transcendent. He's above all. He's the one true God. He's almighty. He's totally sovereign. He is God. And it's with that weight and much, much more than I could possibly ever express from this pulpit that verse 15 in Obadiah should be read. For the day of the Lord, this God, Yahweh, draws near on all the nations. It was this name which was subject to the most intense restriction by Hebrews in light of the third commandment, the, excuse me, the third commandment's preservation of the sanctity of God's name. Back in Exodus chapter 20, where we see the Ten Commandments. And so to avoid misusing the Lord's name, the Hebrews would instead pronounce it as Adonai. That's where we get the L, lowercase o-r-d. Out of fear that they may misrepresent the name of God in the way that they spoke it. They chose to use a different name. It's that kind of weight. The reason I'm giving this little side lesson this morning is because I want us to feel that weight in Obadiah. And what I want us to see is in the judgment of Yahweh, the judgment of the Lord, the first thing that we need to see is what he says right in the scripture. The day is drawing near. The kingdom is drawing near. The second thing that I want us to see is that the king will punish justly. Yes, the kingdom is drawing near, but I want us to see that he'll punish justly. I don't just want us to see this morning that his judgment is near, but that his punishment is, is thorough. It's just. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. The punishment, according to the text, will match the crime. Because God is a just God, His punishment always fits the crime. So often we falsely assume that this means our eternal punishment will be light. But our view of ourselves is too high and our view of God is too low. Look again at the text. As you have done, it will be done to you. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands tonight, to, excuse me, this morning, but I do want you to think about this. Think about all the sins that you've ever committed, that you're guilty of. I'll give you a few seconds. All right, obviously you're not going to be able to dial all those up. Part of that's because our memories aren't the best, but part of the reason that our memories aren't the best is because we would like to forget as much of that as possible. And part of the reason that that's the case is because we like to think more highly of ourselves than we should. So one of the things we do is we forget just how wicked and simple we are sometimes. 
And if we look at ourselves in that light, then what we've done is really not that bad. So if God's going to judge me according to what I've done, then the judgment's really not going to be that serious. That's not what God's Word's saying at all. It's saying that what you've done is horrendous. It's wicked to the core. You have much reason to despair. Because if God repays us according to our sin, the sin is infinite. It's eternal, and it requires that kind of judgment. Eternally speaking, damnation to hell is a just sentencing to all those who refuse to bow the knee in this life and are willing to die as unrepentant sinners. As you have done, God says, it will be done to you. My judgment will be thorough and just, and eternal. But I want you to see another piece of the judgment of the Lord. His third piece. His enemies will drink His wrath. God's enemies will drink His wrath. Verse 16, Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. The Edomites drank in celebration of the calamity of Jerusalem at the top of the mountain of Israel. But the irony of their actions exposed the depths of their pride. If God was willing to judge His own people for their sins, which we find to be the case in Obadiah, how much more will He punish those who despise Him, who hate His name, who have been continually unwilling to repent? The judgment of Israel was only temporary. But the judgment that awaited the Edomites and all the other pagan nations would come with eternal consequences. Now I want us to look at the strong significance of the wording that we find in Obadiah 16 regarding the coming judgment. The word drink is used three times in that verse alone. And then we see that followed by the word swallow, which I think adds extra meaning to how they drink. They gulped. They took big drinks. The Hebrew word translated drink in Obadiah is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 25. Now why is Genesis 25 important? Well, that's the story of Jacob and Esau. Did Esau not drink this same judgment on himself when he forfeited the birthright for a cup of lentil stew? Genesis 25 Verse 27 says this, maybe you remember from the first week, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in, in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, listen to what he says, Please let me have a swallow. Of that. Red stuff there. For I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what you, excuse me. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. 
And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau literally drank the judgment of God. Give me a swallow, he said to Jacob. He was swallowing his own damnation. A cup of lentil stew. The answer to our question that I asked before I read that text is yes. Did Esau not drink his judgment? Yes. Esau drank judgment on himself and all his descendants by, by partaking of the, this one cup of lentil stew. And ultimately, his descendants, the Edomites, drank the same judgment that Obadiah speaks of in verse 16. They not only take it in their mouths, but they swallow it down. The word swallow denotes that they drink it down as if it were good for them, like it was refreshing to their wicked souls. They could, have not, they could not have been more deceived. They were literally drinking their eternal extinction. Listen to the fulfillment of the promise, excuse me, this promise spiritually And the eternal consequences found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18 verse 6 says this about the enemies of God. Pay her back even as she is paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. Let her have a double portion of it, of the wrath of God. Esau and the Edomites drink judgment on themselves. But I want us to take note here that Esau and the Edomites are not the only ones who ever drink the wrath of God. I want us to note that Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath and judgment on our behalf. Matthew chapter 26 Verse 39, maybe you remember the setting. Jesus is is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood as he prays. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. The difference between Christ and Esau, Christ and the Edomites is, they foolishly deceive themselves into drinking the judgment of God. But Christ knew full well the cup that awaited him. That's why he prays what he prays. But Jesus drank it, and he swallowed on the cross the wrath of God that was planned for those in sin. Dear friends, please heed the warnings of God's Word to repent before the living God 
of your offenses to Him and believe on the name of Jesus for the salvation of your soul. Trust this one, Jesus, who knowingly drank the cup of wrath. Believe in Him because He drank it to its fullest by dying on the cross for your sins. Put your faith in this one Because His drinking of the wrath of God not only spared you from eternal punishment, but promises you eternity with Him forever through His resurrection. It is my prayer that we will feel the weight of the words of Obadiah this morning and that we would heed His warning. Surely there are some among us this morning who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. And I'm telling you, your position now is a foolish one. It is a position that guarantees you will drink the full wrath of God unless you put your hope in the one who already has. Yahweh's judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is near. Do you fear Him? Do you fear Yahweh? But God's judgment is only part of the greater promise that the kingdom will be the Lord's. I want us to see the second piece to this promise. The salvation of the Lord. The salvation of Yahweh. Now I want us to see the salvation of God promised to His people. There will be those who escape the judgment of the Lord. Praise be to God. What glimmer of hope. What light. What comfort for our souls, Obadiah 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possession. I want us to notice three things really quickly concerning the salvation of the Lord. The first is this. I want us to notice the place of His salvation. But on Mount Zion... There will be those who escape. Again, we have the near and far promises of God at work. There was, in Obadiah's day, deliverance, a saving of the remnant of God's people. But the bigger picture comes with the eternal salvation of His children in mind. From Mount Zion will come spiritual deliverance from the law, from sin, from self, from hell, from the wrath to come in Christ. Psalm 74, 2 says this, Remember your congregation, this is a prayer to God, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Peter gives us insight to this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Peter's recalling Scripture from the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. We must run to Zion, the place of this choice stone, Jesus, who will not disappoint those who run to him to be saved. He is a sure refuge, as Psalm 19 read this morning, our rock and redeemer. Run to him. Run to Christ. 
He is our only hope of escape when the day of the Lord arrives. The second thing that I want us to see is the people of His salvation. Listen to the next phrase. And I want you to follow me. The next phrase in verse 17 says, And it will be holy. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. Now the it we find in the text is not simply the place Mount Zion. We've already talked about the place. Though it is often referred to as a holy mountain, but the people of Mount Zion. Let me explain. Zion, the city of God, shall be holy because it will be filled not with people who never sinned, but with people who have been bought with the blood of Christ and made holy through the imputed righteousness of Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith through His justifying work on the cross. I like the way John Gill says it. Thus, those that are chosen to this salvation are chosen through sanctification of the Spirit. And such, excuse me, and such as are redeemed and delivered by Christ are purified to be a peculiar people, zealous for good works. It's His people. Who? Who? Who are His people? It's exactly what Obadiah is trying to communicate. Those that God has bestowed His providential love upon. Not by their merit. Before Jacob or Esau did anything good or bad, He chose. Those God chooses to bestow His love on. What grace! What grace of God that He would bestow His love on us. Undeserving, unmerited love. And I want you to see the third piece of the salvation of Yahweh. And it's the product of His salvation. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. In the near, this means that one would enjoy the spoils of war. That when Edom is conquered, the Israelites would quite literally take over their possessions. They would possess their possessions, including their land. In the near, we know that Israel would possess the land of its enemies. We read in verses 19 and 20, to save myself from having to pronounce all those names again, it lists in those two verses all the land that God's people would inherit. Or to state it plainly, for us today, the implications are we get the privileges, not the spoils of war, but enjoying the price that Christ has paid for our salvation. We enjoy what Christ has accomplished for us through His death and resurrection. To be even more specific, we enjoy our union with Christ. Fellowship with Him. Communion with Him. His presence. His blessings. His graces. His promises like we find in Obadiah. His inheritance. Listen, His kingdom. It's all ours. Not because we deserved it, but because God bestowed His love on us. But God also uses His people for His greater purposes. 
Listen to what verse 18 says. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Again, the near and far are represented here. In the near, God's people would consume the Edomites and utterly destroy them. But the word picture given to us in verse 18 is very vivid. It's this raging fire, this consuming fire, whose heat is unbearable, and it will consume. I love how it describes not just Israel as this consuming fire, but Edom as stubble. It's like, it's like kindling. Getting a handful of that and throwing it into a fiery furnace. It's going to be consumed in a matter of seconds. Because it was made for fire. The gospel is that fire. When coupled with the Holy Spirit, it consumes. And it will go forth from the mouths like fire of those who preach the truth of the gospel. And for those who won't repent, it's a preaching of judgment. But for those who, by God's grace, have been granted faith and repentance, it's a delight. Matthew 3.12 gives us a picture of this. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn safely. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. God's people will possess their possessions. That is, Christ. They will have him. And all who will not repent will be consumed in his wake. Are you hoping in Christ as the only means for your salvation to escape the wrath to come? Is your hope in Christ? Is that your only hope? Not Christ and something else or some form of religion or what you hope God will be or the way that He will treat you when the day comes? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking you, is all your hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Christ is not only the judgment of God on His enemies and the salvation of God for His people, but He is the fulfillment of the promise that the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's look at the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of the Lord. I want us to see it in two pieces. It's the near and far again. I want us to see the kingdom of the Lord in the near, that it can be tasted here on earth, that the kingdom of God can be tasted. We can know what it's like here on earth. But I also want us to see that it's, to be experienced for all eternity. Look with me in Obadiah 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. We know that Israel would once again taste victory over their enemies, and that God would not only spare a remnant, but also restore His people to the land. But this kingdom that Israel sees established in their day, the day of Obadiah, is only a glance of the one to come. It's just a shadow, a type, 
Is the kingdom of God a future reality to be hoped for or a present reality to experience now? That's the question that we're asking. And the answer is it's partly present, but mostly future. Though many of its blessings are here to be enjoyed now, many of them are not yet here. Some of its power is available, but not all of it. Some of the curse and misery of this old age can be overcome now by the presence of the kingdom, but some of it cannot be. These fleshly bodies remain. And though Christ has won the victory at the cross and resurrection, we still do battle. The decisive battle is over against sin and Satan and sickness and death. It's been fought and won by the king in his death and resurrection, but the war's not over. Sin must be fought. Satan must be resisted. Sickness must be prayed over and groaned under. And death must be endured until the second coming of the king and the consummation of the kingdom that Obadiah speaks of in verse 21. I do want you to taste the kingdom of God here on earth. I want you to taste it. It's so sweet. It's a delight to the soul. It satisfies and leaves you hungry at the same time. It's good. It is to be tasted. It is to be experienced and known. And I want you to know that. But more than that, I want you to know Yahweh personally, experientially, forever. It's to be experienced in eternity. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. 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 There are definitely futuristic overtones to this phrase. Let's look more closely at Scripture for just a minute to gain the, a better understanding of what is implied in this statement. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord, listen to this, will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord, that's the word Yahweh, will be the one, excuse me, will be the only one, the one and only, and His name, the only one. There's one king who will reign forever. One king. The kingdom will have one king. Let me ask you a question. Have you experienced submission to the king? Have you experienced submission to the one true king? Revelation 5, 9 and 10 say this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Listen to me. The kingdom not only has one king, but the kingdom only has one Savior. Now, many people may have died for the cause of the kingdom, but only one's blood has the power to save. People from every tribe, 
and tongue and nation. The kingdom will be ruled by His power forever. So let me ask another question. Are you right now impressed? Excuse me. I'm ahead of myself. Have you been, this is the question I'm asking now, have you been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus? Have you been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus? Is the only testimony of your life the blood of Jesus covers me? Is that the only hope that you have? Look with me in Revelation 11. This is where I was getting ahead of myself to. It's good news. It's exciting. Revelation eleven fifteen through 17 say this. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give... You thanks, O Lord, excuse me, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. This is a glimpse of the kingdom to come. The kingdom will be ruled with power and last forever. So here's the question I started to ask earlier. Are you right now impressed? with the power of the Almighty? Are you impressed with the one true God? Does God impress you? Or is it just this archaic, unimpressive religious story? Or are you impressed with the Almighty? Look with me in Revelation chapter 15. This is where we finish our glance at the kingdom of the Lord. One King, one Savior, full of power. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So let me close with a series of questions again for us to consider. Have you seen the great and marvelous works of God? Specifically, what Christ has accomplished on the cross? Are you enamored with Him and what He's done? Do you know His righteousness and true ways? Do you fear Him? Do you glorify His name? Have you experienced His holiness? Do you worship this King? Has Christ revealed Himself To you. Hope in this kingdom 
hope in the King of this kingdom. Let me close with this verse. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is always true. The kingdom will be Yahweh's. It belongs to I am who I am. There is no other God. He alone reigns supreme, majestic, sovereign, almighty, the Most High. And His judgment is coming on all those who will not repent. So Father, we're pleading with You this morning. By the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ, we plead, we beg, we beseech You to save those who in my hearing now have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. God, would You do Your saving work through Your Son, Jesus Christ? He alone is the salvation of Yahweh. In Christ alone is our only hope to escape the coming wrath of God. And He's our hope because He absorbed that wrath on the cross. He drank that cup. He swallowed it to its fullest. He's our only hope. And Father, we're praying like Jesus suggested that we pray. Father, we're praying that Your kingdom would come in the hearts of the unrepentant this morning through repentance. And Father, we're praying that Your kingdom would come for us who have repented and believed. We're praying that Your kingdom would come because we want to see Jesus. We, don't, we love this taste that we have, but we want to see Him fully. And so we're praying that Your kingdom would come, that Christ would return and get us. And we're praying this in Jesus' name. Amen.